Are you having a hard time finding a good book to read about Twin Peaks? Did you finish binge-watching Twin Peaks in quarantine, and now you're looking for more? If so, we have the book for you. Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. Based off the popular show from the 1990s, read about the making of each episode from over 100 cast and crew members. This book covers Season 1, Season 2, Firewalk With Me, and Season 3. But wait, there's more! This book has commentary from the community and the host from the wildly popular podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Order now! Supplies are very limited. Go to bluerosemag.com today. Sometimes things can happen just like this. Do you see cream corn on that plate? My grandson is studying magic. I like to think of myself as one of the happy generations. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you. And so, John, you're here to talk about Community Rewatch Episode 9. It's the second episode of Season 2. But before we get into that, you got to go to an event about maybe a week or two ago. It was February 29th and March 1st. I was up at Fayetteville, Arkansas at Mm. the uh, Fayetteville Comic Show that they held up there. I think it was the first time they ever put on a show like this and they had i think i'm gonna list everyone they had so <laughs> twin peaks actors in attendance uh charlotte stewart dana ashbrook eric deray james marshall gary hirschberger sherilyn fenn cheryl lee harry goaz rebecca del rio i think that's wow. everyone i hope wow. i didn't miss anyone ray wise was supposed to be there but uh something came up and he couldn't make it but still they had this huge group of people. Fans of Twin Peaks came from literally all over the world. Uh, there was a gentleman there from Italy. He'd flown in because of this. Um, uh, Cheryl Lee Ladder, who many people may know uh, from, from the UK, came over. Uh, made it part of her trip, I think. I don't want to speak for her, but I hope she doesn't mind. I mention it. I think there was a gentleman from Germany. And fans from all over the country were there. It was a huge uh, I think, relatively yeah. speaking, a, a fairly large contingent of Twin Peaks fans in attendance. And I spent a great deal of time just chatting with everyone and had a great time talking Twin Peaks. So it was a lot of fun. And I was actually there as a vendor. Ah. Um, I had a table set up and I was selling back issues of Wrapped in Plastic, some back issues of the Blue Rose, copies of my book. And then I also had all kinds of knickknacks and odds and ends that I'd collected over the years that were Twin Peaks related. And so I had this big table, well, fairly good sized table of Twin Peaks memorabilia. And I was the only one in the room selling Twin Peaks stuff. So when when someone would come around the corner and they'd just be like, whoa, there's Twin Peaks things for sale. And uh, that was kind of, I was, it was fun. And, uh, Got to meet a lot of new fans who had heard of Wrapped in Plastic, and you know they had a lot wow. of questions. And old-time fans um, I had one guy come up to me, 
and said, uh, I got this wrapped in plastic subscription as a Christmas present when I was a kid. It was the mm. best Christmas present I ever got, which was yeah. really great to hear. And Stephen Miller came by and, you know, Stephen Miller, you just interviewed him not long ago. Yeah. About, it's the great stuff that he does on his blog, tracking down props and background pieces and locations. And he came by and I, I thought I'd never met him before. It turns out in 1996, I had actually met him at a festival oh, up in Washington. Wow. And I, I'd forgotten that. But they all came around the table. And we again, we had just a great time talking about um, Twin Peaks theories and anecdotes of our experiences with Twin Peaks over the years. So it was a really good time. The other thing I did was I brought a few rarities with me just to show to fans. Primarily, I had all the Richard Beamer photos that you know he oh. took behind the scenes on the last episode of the original series. Were they I negatives had, or were they actual prints or what were... No, I ha so what I have is I have these three, three folders. I have one big, big folder that has all the proof sheets. Oh. Um, I think there's like 12 or 14 different sheets and each one of those has like... 25 or 30 photos on it wow the other set i have is he took a lot of portrait pictures close-ups of mm. the actors uh oh. you these have been some of these have been out and published in various places but i've got like the i think i've got the full set wow and i brought that with me and then i have his color shots that he took at the rap party essentially of the last episode i don't think i've ever seen gathering those. around wow um and I also have a set of photos that were taken by a professional photographer on location during the shooting of the pilot when they were shooting Laura's body being found at the log. Wow. And so I have all these incredible pictures when they were out there on Bainbridge Island. So a lot of fans were really excited, and I you know, was happy to share those and let everyone um, – look at those and uh, see what I brought. I brought, I think I brought the ABC promotional poster of Laura Palmer with me. Huh. Um, maybe a few other little odds and ends. So th th it was just, you know, fun to have that and share it with everyone. Well, I guess it's time to start the Community Rewatch episode nine. And here's the unseen players. Rob King is the narrator and Hank Jennings. JC is Audrey Horn. Lindsay is Nancy and Norma Jennings. Andy Bentley is Pete Martell. Peter Glessman is Sheriff Truman. Peter Halen is Albert Rosenfield and Leland Palmer. Aiden is Agent Cooper. We had you on, John, on the last Community Rewatch for episode eight, and thank you for coming back because it's another David Lynch-directed show. Two-hour premiere. There's so much going on, and not just within the story, but there's so much going on in terms of the production of the show mm. as well you know the fact that they're they've gotten renewed and they're and they're trying to reset the show to some extent because um, they do introduce these new ideas. You know, the third man who was out there, the increased uh, importance of Bob, the giant, the supernatural elements, the fear and love. All of these things are essentially not necessarily a new direction, but you, you know they didn't know. It, you know, honestly, they didn't know when they finished season one. Uh, what was going to happen? I mean, if you ask Mark Frost, you know, in May of 1990, well, you know, what's, what, what are you going to do? They don't know yet. They haven't figured it out yet. Right. They don't know where the story is going to go. I think they knew who the killer was. I think they both, Lynch and Frost, knew that Leland was probably the culprit. You're right. But I don't think in season one they had any concept that they were going to make 
Leland possessed by something, and, and that part of the story was going to, you know, expand. I mean, it, it's interesting to me, and, and Craig and I used to talk about this when we were, you know, writing about Twin Peaks all the time. Is Twin Peaks sort of started with this sort of core idea that there was a murder? It was a murder mystery. So who was the killer? And then as it went along, even in season one, to some extent, it, it expanded out another circumference you know to another circle mm. so there's, there's town and there's these subplots going on and there's maybe the, the secret societies and and there's an evil in the woods that was established in season one mm. so there was this sort of element of, there was something a little more to the town and the place and then when you get to season two the circumference jumps again and, and there's a now there's a larger circle that you that you you know, draw around the story is that, wait a minute, there's a supernatural element. There is a demon, perhaps, that's possessed someone. There's, mm. you know, other worlds. And then, of course, you know, when you get to Fire Walk With Me, <laughs> it almost jumps again. And so the idea of, of Laura Palmer and the murder, it was the core of a much larger story that even Frost and Lynch weren't aware was going to happen. And so they just keep, you know, sort of making these quantum leaps into a to a larger and larger universe mm -hmm. essentially you get i think lynch doing this again in season three where you get this massive leap out you know yeah to you have a nuclear explosion and you know the origin of evil and and a redefinition maybe of who or what laura palmer is mm. uh, which is in part eight of season three i mean none of that was envisioned when they were making season one or when they were making season two i think for lynch laura was always the sort of essential component of of something she was she was more than just a character but i don't think he quite even knew what he would ultimately see her as so you see that in this episode you see the beginnings of them trying to paint a much larger picture and fit in this murder mystery as sort of this core concept to a story that's really uh, you know much much bigger you know, we get to episode nine now, and, uh, you know, I think I might actually like this episode better than the premiere. I mean, there's just so many interesting scenes that I really enjoy. And maybe it's just very Lynchian. And I maybe if I'm, I don't know if I'm skipping a little bit, but just to go right to uh, the Meals on Wheels with Donna and going to the grandmother and the grandson. I mean, that is just a, a classic yes. scene. And you get... David Lynch's son there with the... It the was like a mini board. Lynch. Yes. <laughs> How can you not mistaken that's his son? Yes. Yeah, with the cream corn. I would agree with you that this episode is a better episode than the two-hour premiere. The two-hour premiere was functioning to reset the show and, and get all the storylines sort of back up to momentum. But this episode, this one, has a <laughs> lot of just – the scene you're just talking about, you know, where Donna comes in and we we meet Mrs. Tremont and the grandson yeah. uh, for the first time. And, you know, we get, again, a reminder that there is more going on here than just normal science perhaps or – you know, a, a normal murder mystery is gonna is gonna encompass. We have the classic scene where Mrs. Tremont says, "Do you see cream corn on my plate?" Mm. And, and Donna looks, and there it is. She sees it, and she looks back up again, and then she said, "I asked for no cream corn. Do you, do you see cream corn on my plate?" And Donna looks down, and it's gone. Yeah. And then Pierre Tremont, the grandson, is holding. Uh, his hands out, and there in his cupped hands is the cream corn. Mm. Donna's kind of astonished <laughs> by all that <laughs> happening, although she somehow quickly forgets that it literally <laughs> disappeared and went into his hands. <laughs> Those scenes were the scenes that pulled you. If, if, I'm speaking for myself, I guess. Mm. 
this was a show unlike anything else that had ever been on television before. This kind of stuff was fascinating. This was where you were celebrating yeah. this show. It's part of what made me such a massive fit. This, is, this was a reminder of the dream sequence in season one. Mm. This was like, yeah. oh, we are back into, <laughs> you know, the kind of material that is going to have us endlessly talking about what it means, what it's all about, what's really happening here. Right. Um, and there's more scenes like that in this episode. I mean, there's the Bob coming over the couch scene, which is you know one of the most indelible images in all of Twin Peaks. I mean, just an incredible scene where Maddie sees Bob. That's mm. just and did you did you interview like it? Did you interview Frank Silva about this? Is this something that you yes? yes. Can you share that? Sure. Yeah, we were lucky enough to meet Frank Silva way back in the 1993 Twin Peaks Festival, and had a chance to sit down with him and talk to him for at least an hour. And we asked him about various scenes. Um, I forget if we specifically asked him about this, but in the course of our conversation, he he talked about it. He talks about how Lynch would basically say to him. You know, Frank, just come in. You know what to do. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Frank Silva would be like, I know what to do. <laughs> what do you mean? And, and, you know, Lynch was just, you know what to do. Just do what you, you know, do what you need to do. The sequence was supposed to be Bob walks in to the living room and he walks toward Maddie and he leaps over the couch and then approaches Maddie. Frank Silva, you know, says when I was doing the scene, I didn't, it didn't feel right. And, and then Frank Silva says, you know, he liked to play Bob as if he were an animal. Mm. And he said it felt better for me to crawl over the couch. And so he crawls over the couch and crawls toward the camera. And he, and he said in the first take, and I said earlier that he wasn't an actor, and that's not fair to him. He was an actor. He just didn't have any acting roles really uh, up and uh, before stage he work. was Bob. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't on TV. And and so I apologize for saying he wasn't an actor because he'd been trained in acting and he had been trained not to you know approach the camera in a scene and so when he's crawling over the couch he crawled past the camera mm. and lynch said cut frank that was perfect only let's do it again this time crawl straight into the camera yeah and so they did it in a, a second take i only did the two takes and it was the second take that we see where he comes in and crawls over the couch and goes right into the camera, which, again, is one of those scenes that you just never forget. It's seared in your mind when you see it the first time. It, even today, that scene is brilliant. But mm. you know, we're talking about 1990. There was just nothing like that on TV. So he's attacking. This is a brilliant episode. He's attacking the viewer. Like Lynch is like, yes. you're going after the viewer, you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, Bob was a frightening image, and here yeah. he was essentially coming right at you. He does that where Bob is blurry, and he's walking toward – Cooper's having a dream, mm. and Bob is, is kind of yep. blurry, and he, he's, he's walking, and then Bob comes into focus, and yeah. he's kind of laughing. He's doing that kind of cackly, maniacal laugh, and he's coming straight at you again there as well. Yeah, that's right. at the end of this so, episode. Yeah. 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 And back then, can you imagine, like, yeah – the audience is watching this. It's probably like, this is, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, I now, hear from fans. They've been freaked out by that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And John, yeah. I want to go back to the, you know, Donna with Miss Tremont and inside mm -hmm. meals of wheels. That scene, there's always, there's one part of that scene that always like perplexes me. You know, Donna's going back and forth with her going, I'm take, who are you? And I'm mm -hmm. Donna, you know, I'm taking over Laura's spot. And she's like, Laura's dead. But then Miss Tremont, she like looks to the left 
at mm-hmm. nobody, and she says no. And to me, it's like, who is she talking to? I mean, mm. has that ever has that made you ever think about like, is there so, I, she's part of something else we just don't see? Uh, oh, that's a great observation. I'd have to go back and look. I, I honestly haven't really thought about that. I mean, there. I guess you know, I, I get distracted by all the other stuff that's going on. Right. I'm gonna have to go back and look at it. But it wouldn't be surprise me at all that you know that just fit with whatever Lynch yeah, was doing. It feels and, and weird. I always but. thought it to be like she's kind of like. She's freaked out and she's just talking to herself like, no. That, that, I always that? thought she was talking to Laura. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know why, but like when I first watched this, I didn't know what to make out of it. But over time, a part of me feels like because clearly these two disappear. So clearly they're part of something supernatural or something beyond right. beyond right. reality. So absolutely, uh, and she yeah. goes. She's like, she's dead. Donna knows she's dead. Donna's friends with her. She, everybody knows she's dead. Why are you saying that? But then she says, no. Part of me feels like Laura's talking to her, or someone's talking to her. Well, I mean, she's, she's on another plane. She's in a whole other world. I mean, yes. Yeah. And then Firewalk with me. You got the painting and yada yada yada. Yeah, I I always thought that was a particular weird thing and i always thought maybe she was talking to laura or somebody else yeah, that knows? could have been in that room so, i like it definitely yeah. and i just want to say real quick about uh the grandson you know he's practicing magic and i think about the fire walk with me poem that, uh, yes. that the magician longs to see so mm-hmm. i kind of always wonder like is this mm-hmm. am i making a stretch or did lynch see no this? i mean who knows who the magician is i mean right arguably you can make a really good argument that that Cooper is the magician, yes. um, but he he's kind of got that little suit on. <laughs> he's in there, and obviously he does a magic trick, and uh, they say he's he's studying magic. And maybe it's black magic. I mean, maybe. maybe. And you mentioned Cooper. You know, in in season three, near the end is seventeen. Maybe he he leaves the black lodge, red room, and he just uses his hand. It's like he's using the force from uh, Star Wars. He <laughs> yes. just uses right. his hand, and all of a sudden the curtains part. And to me, that's right. like has he. Has he gone through this whole journey and now he is the master and he can just do what he wants? He has he can bend reality, bend maybe our, uh, he, he has full control. Yeah, there's a lot going on at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a whole other anyway, show. But that's, <laughs> I got it figured out. There's no question. That's a curious scene, and it's obvious that it was deliberate. You know, the Cooper uses his hands to move the curtain. I mean, you know, uh, he, he makes a gesture to move the curtain rather than like, physically touch it and pull it away. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so this episode is well known for the owls are not what they seem. I believe it's the second clue, right? We had the um, smiling bag, and I think this is the second clue. The mm. owls are not what they seem, which Major Briggs brings the message to Cooper. Yes. And then we see at the end in the dream, started talking about John, where where uh, Bob is coming up mm-hmm. into the scene. He says the owls are not what they seem, and we see a owl cover Bob's face. What what is your interpretation of that? What is the whole owls are not what they seem, John? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, you can go way back into sort of the UFO mythology stuff, which uh, Frost was really in into, mm-hmm. and I yeah. know Frost had studied it, and um, I remember at the time. There was an author named Whitley Strieber, Strieber, I can't remember. I think he wrote a book called Communion, and he was yes. into that occultish, you know, paranormal stuff. And he had written something at the time where owls were sort of masking presences. It, you'd mm. see an owl, and it was really masking either an alien presence or something else. Oh, and so, yeah. so <clears throat> that may have been Frost possibly introducing that element. It may have just been something that, you know, just made some sense to Lynch that 
you would have the owl sort of superimposed over Bob. I think that's what you're talking about. That's right? totally what I'm talking. Yeah. Well, and you know, the owls were these sort of observing presences. You see them in the yeah. trees. You see them looking down. It is a fascinating concept. The idea that maybe there are these forces that are you know, right there with us. We just can't, you know, recognize what they truly are, mm-hmm. and they maybe they literally take on the physical shape of an owl, or maybe they can just see through the eyes of an owl. I mean, an owl is mm. a fascinating animal and you know with those big eyes and it's obviously quietly observing and so it, it gives a sense of unease i think and it just fit really well with the concepts they were introducing yeah in twin peaks whenever i bring this up i feel like i'm 16 years old again writing to wrapped in plastic saying the monkey's an owl or something like that but, <laughs> but i mean I, I i still kind of wonder if the spirits uh, bob and mike are all owls i mean TV, they move around with through the owl yeah yeah and tv guide they ha- i mean tv guide doesn't know anything but there was a picture of like you know new mysteries and it was like mm. There was an owl, and it had Bob title underneath it. So it was kind of like they were they were associating mm. the Bob with an owl. Yeah. Later on, we, we, you have uh, one our Mike jumping out of the window, which that's what we I, both right. assume. We we in our minds make it he, him turning into some sort of owl to get to point A to point B. I do. B. Right? I think every of us maybe thinks I'm crazy. I don't. I kind of agree with you. <laughs> but also, when Major Briggs and Cooper are out in the woods in the white light, yeah. there's the mm-hmm. owl. Right. Um, and, maybe and, there's just, a, and there's yeah. an owl that appears after, you know, the murder is resolved and they're, right. I, th- I think. Where did Bob you know, go? They're where's the Bob now? And they're talking and they're like, you know, where's Bob now? And yeah. then don't you see this owl kind of fly right. in Leland, through, through the trees? And, um, and John, I mean, right. And, and Brian just mentioned that Leland hoots. Leland hoots when like he's when he's in captivity there right. and he's, he's going crazy he's oh, okay yeah. yeah he hoots like an owl and maybe you know maybe it's like we know mark frost came up with the owls aren't what they seem he created all that mythology and maybe this is lynch just giving it a yeah a, a, I, like a, I, I another like texture there, there was a little bit of nods in season three like i think when dougie comes home from the the casino there's an owl right. flying above and there's not a lot and i think i think there might be some owl like decorations in the kitchen, in the kitchen yeah. there was yeah. yeah there is there's an owl cookie jar yeah. in dougie's kitchen there's an owl cooking jo- cookie jar yeah. um and that the owl does uh fly over uh, dougie cooper when he's standing outside the limo and if you look at that scene real carefully i've been writing about all this watch that scene again look at it really carefully if you watch mclaughlin and this could just simply be an accident in the editing but he's standing there and then he's startled and he looks down and Mm. then the owl appears Ah. so cooper senses and reacts to the owl before it appears interesting um now that again could just simply be they edited it in too late um, I like to interpret it that, um, you know, Cooper is uh, is certainly more than he appears. You know, I kind of think he's an observing presence in season three as well as actually Dougie. He's in tune with the world in a way that nobody else really is. And so he would be perhaps aware of the owl or he conjured the owl <laughs> into, <laughs> into existence, which is also a possibility because yeah. he sees the world the way he wants to see it. That's it for the owls in season three. There's really nothing else. I don't yeah. think, not to get too far off on a tangent, I think they were very deliberate not to, you know, re, you know, tread that same ground again and again. You, you, you have the owl, that one sort of 
nod to, oh yeah, there were owls. You don't get a lot of cherry pie. You get some, you know, you don't get a lot of donuts. You get some. True. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, we know that was an element of Twin Peaks, but we're not just going to, you know, revisit that over and over and over right. again. It's um, like a little nod. They acknowledge yeah, it yeah. and then they, and they don't, you know, spend any more time on it. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about this episode? I mean, it's a great, it really is an amazing episode. I love the whole uh, seats with Cooper going into the hospital with Annette. I think that's uh, yeah. so funny. I mean, there's so there's so many great elements in this episode. That, you know, that scene, if you read Lynch on Lynch, he talks about that scene. And what it is, is Truman and Cooper come into Ronette's hospital room, and they're trying to be quiet, and they pull these metal stools over, and they want to sit down, and they have to adjust the stools in order to make them comfortable, you know? Yeah. And so they both have to, or I think maybe it's Truman who reads the instructions <laughs> on how to adjust the height of the stool. And they're trying to do it really, really quietly so they don't disturb Ronette. Yes. And so they, you know, they go through this whole elaborate kind of procedure of doing it. And when I watched it the first time, I thought, oh, you know, that must have happened in real life. Yes. They were, and, and, and Lynch thought it was great. And he said, let's do it. For the show, that's what I would. And love. in fact, Lynch confirms that in Lynch on Lynch uh, uh, that 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 is is what happened. They you know they were having trouble with these, and he he thought that would be the perfect kind of scene to include in here. It's just sort of one of those tangents that Lynch spends some time on where. Cooper and Truman have to figure out how to adjust the height of the stool. And it's acted perfectly well. It, it, it's a funny scene. It just embellishes the whole of Twin Peaks. I mean, it gives it that that flavor that you don't find on other other programs. Yeah, I love it. Now the question is, did they reenact it or were, were we watching them do it for the first time? Actually, I think they reenacted it. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they did. I think yeah. they were directed, okay, you're going to whisper. You're going to, uh, and, and I think they probably had to know how to do that's it. That's true. Because, yeah. That's I think true. what stymied them the first time is they didn't know how to do it. And so they were struggling. And once they figured it out, Lynch was like, let's do that. Let's have you have to figure it out. But you have to do it really quiet. You can't yeah. make any noise while you do it, which just, you know, gives it some of its its humor. Is them trying to figure that out without disturbing Ronette. There's another scene worth noting. That's at the very end of this episode where Major Briggs comes in and is talking to Cooper about the message. There's a bizarre effect that happens. It may be the dream sequence. It's almost like it. Like light. It like, yeah, the lighting and an image sort of ripples and, and changes. You know what I'm talking about? Hmm. That, that, that yeah, sequence? I, it might be part of his dream. I think. Okay, maybe I the dream. That's the dream. So that sequence, a reason why I'm thinking of Major Briggs is because it was Don Davis who told us the story. What had happened was there had been a chemical mix that was wrong and there was, uh, you know, something, something had gone wrong with the shot that they had done. And someone had come in, I guess it was, you know, uh, Don Davis was there and said to David, there's a problem. Something affected the film and it, uh. it doesn't look right. And so Lynch apparently said, you know, let me go look at it. And he, he, made, and he goes, it's kind of weird but it'll work. <laughs> and so he just incorporated the mistake. Obviously, there had been an accident or something had gone wrong. And instead of reshooting, he kind of was like, yeah, you know what? I, I kind of like that. And that, again, is an example of Lynch taking real world accidents and events. He did it in the pilot with the lights flickering in the morgue and all that. And just making it part of the, the show. It seems orchestrated. It's not. And yet it has a reality to it, you know, stands out beyond anything if they had sort of deliberately tried to make it happen. I mean, it was something unusual mm, and it yeah. really was striking. 
and Lynch knew that those kinds of things have an impact on on viewers and and can make what might be a rather simple scene stand out and have a depth to it that he, uh, you know, he didn't intend and you wouldn't have thought about until it happened. And mm. he just knows to, to include all that. Interior, one-eyed jacks, day. The get-acquainted room, early morning ease pervades. Girls lounge in robes, smoke cigarettes. Two blondes play checkers in a corner. A third girl, Nancy, the pickup seen previously in Audrey's room, sits and reads the morning paper. Audrey Horn passes through the morning, looking for clues. She sits next to Nancy. Morning. You say that as if it's news. Audrey lights up, ignores the rebuff, gestures toward the newspaper. Well, what is the news? Cookout at the Packard Mill. Audrey peers at the banner headline, Mill Burns. She reacts with unbridled delight. Wow. Arson, maybe. I'll bet. Nancy, do me a favor. I'm looking for somebody. Audrey produces a photograph torn from a high school yearbook. Ronette Pulaski. We worked Spokane together. Shriners and stuff. Ronette? You know her? Sorta. Just a summer girl. She didn't stay long. Ronette had a friend, Laura. Ever see them together? Emery Battis enters the Get Acquainted room, pauses to greet familiar faces. Audrey tamps out her cigarette, looks for exit. Gotta go. Maybe we can talk sometime. With that, Audrey rises, steps away. Nancy looks up from her paper, watches her leave. There's a cold look in her eyes. Anything you say, Miss Horn. I like the twist. Nancy actually knows it's uh, Audrey Horn. I think that's a neat little twist. And I, th- I clearly they went different in a different direction with Nancy, but I think it would have been fun to have her play off of Audrey and have somebody on the inside. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, it's kind of a shame because it could have gave Audrey some more things to do. Yes. You know? Yeah, Another, right. And, like, I, f- I always like the direction of Audrey. Like, she's kind of undercover herself. Yeah. Sleuthing around. And that kind of drops later on, but it's kind of nice. Right. And I feel like there was a few episodes where Sherilyn Finn just wasn't in the show. And it was kind of Right. Sh- she disappears. Some people say that the actress might have been sick at that time or what. But it was just one of the things. Maybe originally that's why they were going to have more. But I thought JC did great as Audrey and uh, and Lindsay did great as Nancy. They're fun and they, they play off each other really well. They Those two were so good that I honestly didn't even know it was that. <laughs> Interior. Blue Pine Lodge. Day. Cooper, Truman, and Albert gather about Pete Martell at a dining room table. Pete's dazed, a little singed around the edges. She was afraid. I've never seen Catherine afraid before. Well, when we went camping, she killed a snake, and a tree hit me one time. She had a reaction. Catherine asked me to help her find the account ledger. She asked me to help her. This was in her safe. Catherine said it was the wrong one. Josie showed me a second ledger. Sounds like your wife was cooking the books. We couldn't find it anywhere. But I found my high school yearbook, Midge Jones. Midge had blue eyes like a robin's egg. And a funny way of walking. One foot here, one foot there. One foot here... One foot there. Feats don't fail me now. Pete, let's make a heroic attempt to keep our minds and 
What's left of your strain on the night in question? The night the mill burned down? Pete looks up. Seems to see Albert for the first time. I don't like you. No one does, Pete. Amen to that. Well, bows my butt out of the glee club, gentlemen. I've got a job to do. Did Catherine tell you what was in the ledger? Heavens no. But she was desperate to find it until the phone rang and she was gone. I saw her car out front. The mill was burning, so I went inside. I'm sorry, Pete. We all are. Have you found the body? Cooper shakes his head. No. A mill fire burns somewhere close to 2,000 degrees, Mr. Martell. That's hot enough to incinerate bone. Cooper places a reproving hand on Albert's. Stops him from continuing. Pete fixes Albert with a baleful stare. Catherine's dead. Let me get your boys some coffee. Pete shuffles off toward the kitchen. Cooper and Albert trade conclusions. Truman watches quietly as a spectator at a tennis match. Leo's clothing reeked of gasoline. Gas cans found at the hotspot match those in the back of his truck. Catherine hired Leo to burn down the mill. She gets a phone call. From Leo? Maybe something went wrong. Wrong enough. Mill burns. Catherine with it. I want Shelly Johnson. She can put Leo at the scene. Catherine, too. Pete prepares coffee, wipes a fugitive tear from his eye. The phone rings. He answers it. Hello? Josie, where are you? Pete writes down her reply. A Harry and Aja Cooper are in the living room with a man that I don't like. I can... All right, Josie, I, I won't tell a soul. Meanwhile, Cooper and Albert continue. Truman spectates as before. We need to look at Catherine Martell's will. Who stood to benefit from her death? Who gets the mill? Or what's left of it? Life insurance. I'll run the policy for beneficiaries. Albert turns to Truman, sneers at his silence. Don't be shy, Prince of Yokels. You too can participate in the investigatory process. Truman rises. Cooper grabs him by the arm. Just then, Pete interrupts. Pete's eyes on Albert. Excuse me, boys. Coffee. Piping hot. Morons and mooncaps, wherever I go. Pete carries a wooden tray into view. He speaks as he sets and pours coffee for four. When I met Catherine, she was dating a fellow named Rodney Pouquet, French-Canadian millionaire's son. Rich as crisis. Rodney never said it, but he looked down on me. I know he did. And why not? Rodney in his fine summer suits... And me and my overalls and boots? I never minded all that much. Until he started talking rude to me. Like I wasn't even there. Rodney Pouquet hurt my feelings. He embarrassed me in front of my friends and that made me mad. Pete pauses, sets down the coffee pot. Albert wonders. Is there a point to this insensate ramble? Well, yes, there is. I hiked up to Rodney's big house and I socked him on the jaw. Rodney never talked that way to me again. Albert looks to Cooper and Truman. He knows what's coming. Not again. They nod, and Pete floors Albert with a slow right cross to the jaw. So I thought, I think all the uh, players did a great job. Fantastic. I mean, uh, I think Andy really nailed Pete Martell. Seriously. And, uh, and Peter with a... Uh, uh, with Albert, I thought it was really an interesting take on that. I thought it was fun. But, you know, the problem with the scene is that, like, again, there, somebody's beating up Albert. And I think it kind of gets old after a while that, you know, you have Sheriff Truman beating him and everybody hates him. And I don't know. I think that... 
Right. We get the point. Nobody likes Albert. Between Truman and Albert, it, it is that's where the rift is and because you have FBI versus the cops and you're getting that dynamic. Yeah. But then to ha- have Albert get almost into blows with actually with a citizen of Twin Peaks. Right. It's almost pushing it too far. It is, yeah. Actually should be no conflict between the FBI and a citizen. Right. Because then you're making the FBI even like bigger assholes. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like that right. shouldn't be. And I think it works with the police department better. And then you have uh, Dale Cooper being the outlier because he's so friendly. You're having a buddy this buddy relationship, yeah. you think everything's going to be cool. Then Albert comes in, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's some jerks here. So, yeah, I mean, we, we don't need it to have to be with everybody. Right. It's it's redundant. We we get it. And yeah. actually, the, the next episode is so, so much more powerful because Albert confronts uh, Sheriff Truman, and that's where the uh, I love you, Sheriff Truman. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a, a better thing than having every episode – Albert gets into a fight with somebody. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like, yeah, it's it gets old quick. Yeah, Twin Peets, I loved his performance as Harry Truman. He's a very small part in this, but I just love when he comes in as Harry Truman. Interior, the Double R Diner. Day. Open on a police flyer. The official sketch of the long-haired man, Bob. And a headline, have you seen this man? Another angle reveals Deputy Andy Brennan as he carefully attaches the flyer to the inside of the double R diner doors. Andy's using scotch tape to affix the paper flyer. He's managed to get a piece caught in his tufted hair. Leland Palmer and Maddie Ferguson enter past Andy and move to a booth. Leland is resplendent in sharp suit, bright white hair, and a whole new attitude. He nearly beams. Best chocolate malt is this side of the Mississippi. I haven't tried a malt here yet. Then I insist, dear. Simple pleasures. Life is too short. Norma Jennings approaches. You're looking well, Mr. Palmer. I'm feeling well, thank you. I'm glad you're feeling better, Uncle Leland. A man must take care of his family. And I still have a family to take care of. He reaches over, takes her hands with pride. I'm coming through the pain, Maddie. I'm coming through alive. Behind the counter, Norma makes chocolate shakes. Hank Jennings enters the diner, moves behind the counter with a winning smile. Norma can't help but return it. What are you grinning about? You. Hank. I look at you, and I feel a little tug at the edge of my lips, right next to the kissing part. And before I know it, I'm grinning again. No sale. You're 30 minutes late. Okay, you found me out. Hank produces a Polaroid. Holds it up for Norma to examine. A 1965 GTO. Convertible. One owner. 40,000 miles. Clean and cherry. For what? For you. It's a surprise, honey. Well, it was. Where will we even get the money? The diner's barely breaking even. I put a little money away for some special. Trust me, okay? Trust you? Hank pulls Norma a little closer. Brings his hips as close as propriety allows. Norma reacts, but she doesn't move away. It's the car you always wanted, Norma. The car I said I'd get you one day, remember? Tell me you remember, Norma. Norma looks him right in the eyes, gently, but determined to resist him just the same. I remember. With that, she picks up the malteds and moves to Leland's booth. Norma sets down the malteds. Thank you, Norma. Now, Maddie, a little piece of heaven. They try their malteds. Incredible. What did I tell you? 
Just another routine miracle of everyday life here in Twin Peaks. Uncle Leland, you're doing all the right things. What do you mean, dear? When Dad died two years ago, I thought I'd never get over it. Mom never has. It was focusing on the little things that got me through it. The everyday miracles. Life is a miracle, Maddie. I want to say something to you. You don't have to answer. In fact, you shouldn't. You should think about it first. Promise first. Okay. You've said you don't really have that much to go back to in Missoula. You've also said how much you like it here. It's true. What I want to say is, you don't have to go back. You can stay with Sarah and me if you like. Get your own place, of course, but stay in town. We're family, too. We can make a family here. I don't know what to say. You shouldn't say anything until you eat that malted. She smiles, they dig in. So I don't know if we really even need these scenes. A lot of this has been said before, or actually they repurposed it. Like when you think about Leland and Maddie, Maddie comes to Sarah and Leland in the Palmer house and says she's leaving. So I don't know if this this really worked. That scene works perfectly what we did see on screen because it felt it felt like home and yeah. it's we it's i can't describe it but it felt comfortable right like they're on the couch and they're he, listening to music they're just kind of like yeah. chilling relaxing and then she he, just comes in it's and, very homey feeling yeah. and it's like this calm before the storm right because we know what's going to happen to maddie uh down the line but this scene, you, you could take that that wig off of her, and you can almost picture that being Laura, mm, right? And it, sure. And it's like a, that scene has so many meanings, and it's a it's a wonderful, beautiful scene between the three of them, and having it play out in a diner, it feels less personable. But it's well acted by everybody. But the scene in the context of the show, I don't think right. would work. It, it's out for a good reason. Yeah. I think. And I think, you know, Rob King, I really enjoy the narration he's been doing. And he does a great job with Hank Jennings and stuff. It's a fun Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and having some dialogue between Hank and Norma. And right, he wants to buy her a car and stuff. But I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I still say he seems to be taking money from the register. And he yes. went, where's he getting all this money? I mean, we know how he's, where he's getting his money because he's doing all these uh, hit jobs yes, and yes. drugs and stuff. But, and yeah. it's funny because... He wants to get in good graces with Norma. He wants to get off the couch, you know, yes. sort of say. He wants to be back with her. And buying her a car, he basically wants to buy for himself. Yes. Because you're technically still married. Yep. They so technically are. Yeah. If I buy it for you, it's really for me. <laughs> you know, that sort of deal. Right. So. But great, great scene. Well acted. Everybody did a fantastic job. They really did. Before you go, John, I I know you've uh, you've gone on a trip. I wanted to hear about uh, <laughs> your your little trip that you took. Uh, yes, back in October, um, I went to the ground zero of the Trinity test site. This is where the first um, nuclear weapon was detonated in um, White Sands, New Mexico. Wow! And of course, obviously. You know, this is a piece of the now the Twin Peaks mythology uh, that the you know the atomic bomb was was uh, detonated in 1945, and that may have opened a rift that allowed Bob to come out. Or who who knows how you want to interpret that? But I wanted to go to that actual place, and um, you can only go to that site uh, two days out of the year the first wow. saturday of october and the first saturday of april they open that test range which is an active uh, military uh, range and they open it up to the public and you can go in and you can actually you know go to 
the exact spot where they detonated the bomb. And so I wanted to go there to kind of have context, of, kind of know what the area was like. So yeah. when I watch it, I can um, maybe see it with different eyes. Obviously, the scene that they... Yeah, they show us, uh, of course, the atomic explosion is all just a digital effect, but the entire landscape that they that they show us in there was all, uh, um, I think, a, an effect. But um, I think they were trying to be as accurate as they could to, the, you know, the landscape and the location. And I wanted to go and and visit that site, especially after seeing Part Eight. So I did on October eighth of twenty nineteen. I went out there, and there's a, this sort of this stone obelisk that they've constructed at the exact ground zero, and you can go up and and be there. And they've got a few other things. They've got people there with Geiger counters and mm. um, some history and some pictures that they've got and and some other information. It's a fascinating place to go. It isn't necessarily a a real tourist destination. You kind of have to know when and how to to go. Yeah. Um, but historically, I think it was it was really fascinating to go there. And obviously, there's a Twin Peaks connection. So yeah, isn't that, that something? That's cool. More interesting. I want to know, like, how long did it take for the radiation to go away? Like, I mean, it's been over 50 years. I, you know, I, apparently there's still some radiation there. Um, uh, they they said that you know if you go and you visit the site. You're you're, not, you're exposed to no more radiation at the site than you would be if you were in an airplane uh, traveling from one coast of huh. the United States to another. So okay. I guess when you're in a when you're in up in an aircraft, you're perhaps exposed to more radiation you might normally be. But I think there is you know still some radioactivity there, and um, that may be part of why they only open it, you know, for those short periods of time. Plus, obviously, probably the main reason is it's an active, it's an active uh, military site, and they don't uh, want people coming in yeah, there. So they sure. just, um, they just do it. Those very, few, and it's only um, like half a day. It's you know, I think uh, it's from like nine to two on the Saturday, wow. rain or shine. I mean, that's it. They're opening it up. You come in, and you can see it. I, it was it was fascinating. It's way out of the way. It's hard to get to. I'm lucky. I was in Dallas here. It was uh, you know basically a an eight hour drive. So I wow. went out the night before and then stayed in a hotel and went the next morning. So um, and did you get the vibe that this was like like part of Twin Peaks in some ways? Like do you the landscape and how it is? It's like yeah, I could see this being what I see you on know, TV. Not, not not really. No, and I haven't watched part eight since i've been there i I, mm. I will be watching it again soon but um um you know you wouldn't think of that obviously they you know when we watched part eight it was like what, what is this it right. yeah. seem yeah. to be at all like twin peaks and so yeah. um uh, but 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 they made that part of essentially the Twin Peaks mythology. The, yeah. That is a critical element in the whole story. Is that the, you know this bomb blew up and and it, it may have set into motion these um, these things. And so um, uh, I, I've got to say it's hard to think about Twin Peaks when you're there. I mean it, it it's so fantastical that a demon <laughs> perhaps was released or an egg <laughs> fell into the sand or whatever. Yeah. So I, I guess the short answer is now really didn't think of Twin Peaks other than perhaps Frost and Lynch's thinking about how they wanted to, you know, take this important historical event and incorporate it in to the story. You know, I had a friend, you know, I was talking to about this and he said, you know, before this nuclear explosion, there was um, 
I think the Tunguska event where a, a meteor or a comet came into Siberia, you've probably heard about it, and it exploded over the, you know, the, the wastelands of Siberia and flattened all the trees and mm. um, people, people saw it from far away and, and then they, you know, uh, felt the vibrations from far away. And I think in terms of the energy and power that was released, um, there was more in that naturally occurring event in um, whatever the year was, 1909 or 1912. I don't remember what the year was, but it was early, early 20th century that this happened. And the point my friend was making is, even though there was less energy um, released in the nuclear explosion, the Trinity nuclear explosion, it was the intent of man to release these powers. And it mm. was perhaps man you know, dealing with energies that he... Uh, should not be um, playing with. And, and that is um, really what the, the root cause of releasing a Bob or the Woodsman or whatever mm -hmm. into the world. It, it didn't really, it wasn't just that they had, you know, for the first time released this amount of energy because arguably yeah. that kind of explosion had happened naturally in the past and Bob wasn't released then. Right, <laughs> so, right. um, or, or maybe he was, right? Maybe there's multiple. Uh, who knows how you right. want to read that? But, yeah. but the, the point was it was the actual – it was this, this weapon that was created and resulted in, in Bob. And again, I know there's debate about maybe Bob existed long before then and even Frost's book indicates that Bob was a presence in the Pacific Northwest long before 1945. Mm. But um, – Lynch and Frost were interested in that, interested in that moment in history, and they incorporated it into the Twin Peaks story. So I thought of that when I was there. I thought of, uh, you know, the meaning that that had in in the 20th century and and how it changed essentially um, all of our lives. That, that mm. something like this could have been created, and I think they, you know, wanted to address that. Totally. And so those thoughts were certainly on my mind when I was there. Yeah. And they always say, you know, is Bob just the evil that men do? And like, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that that's. I mean, that is very true. And so, yeah, I guess you could say the bomb was the evil that men do. Um, right. Right. I don't yeah. think the people who created it thought of it in any way like that. I think right. they. Um, they as a, as a protection, as a way of stopping. Well, they wanted to stop the war, right. and, and they knew that there was a race, perhaps, uh, with with the Germans. But it was certainly a sobering thing that happened, and even the people who, you know, who developed it, I think they didn't celebrate that mm -hmm. they had done that. Right. They um, understood the gravity of what they had done, and how the world would never be the same again after that. And I, I think that's kind of what Lynch and Frost, you know, want to get across to us, right? That, yeah. that there's these moments, and that was certainly a moment where you can never, ever go back. And so um, that's really what that's all about. Something changed, and it, it was, you know, like they say, the genie's out of the bottle, right? Right. You can never put it back in. And so that really was sort of their way of, of illustrating and and depicting that idea for us in Twin Peaks. That's how that's how I interpret it. And, you know, like I just saw, yeah, we see Bob and the monster and everything, but that's how I always saw it too. It's, this is the beginning of the end in a sense of, uh, this is like something, yeah, like devastating. Like is that you can't go back now. Yeah. Right. 
Um, you know, if I, if I had to think about that, and, and it's open to a million interpretations, I certainly don't want to waste your time, but, you know, no, no, no. Um, and I haven't watched it again recently, but we do see Bob come out of this sort of stream of viscous fluid. But I think more importantly, we forget that an egg drops down into the sand and incubates, yeah. I guess, for 11 years or whatever, and mm. then cracks open and that frog moth comes out and, and then crawls into the girl's mouth, which presumably is Sarah Palmer. That, to me, is what essentially was released in that mm. in that moment. Right. Um, yeah. I think you can make a good case. I know some people have, have said, well, this totally you know, cancels out the mythology of Twin Peaks. It's rewriting it. Bob was this evil presence, and he'd been there. Uh, I'm not sure that's that what it's trying to say to us is that, uh, you know, this is where Bob was, quote-unquote, born. I think more so it's this 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 other thing was mm-hmm. released and and hatched later. And, and Bob may have just been a presence there. Do you mm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't yeah. want to I don't want to try to define it. I don't think I can. You know, when someone else will say, "Well, this this was the birth of Bob and it it contradicts previous storyline." I'm not sure you can you can claim that either. Biggie was enough yeah. to you know, to, to see it in different ways. Definitely. As you're saying that, it makes me almost think of like, you know, the convenience store, above the convenience store, you had a lot of other spirits there hanging out. And you do kind of wonder, like, you're right, could it be that you had the mother or the that other creature and you then have Bob and they're there, they're witnessing this, but maybe it is the egg is the real reason that that, that is yeah. is landing on it, Earth. And Bob's in yeah. Leland and this thing's in Sarah and maybe they weren't supposed to come together, but then they did. And then that wasn't a good thing. Look, obviously, there's different, many different ways to interpret it. And I have just been writing a lot about. Hopefully, someday something will come of all of this. You know, this is one of those cases where I have chosen to view it one way, even if it may go against what is being given to us in the story. But I cannot reconcile or accept that Sarah Palmer was an evil creature. No, um, I can't she, You see her suffering, um, and I may have said this on another podcast, but I'll say it again. You know, you see her suffering um, in season one. You see her at the at the funeral. You see her in, in great pain. You see her in great pain in Fire Walk With Me. Mm-hmm. You see her saying, Leland, don't do this. You, you know, she's a troubled character. I, I just cannot perceive as evil. I see her more as a victim. Yeah. And right, right. Um, for me, I read it that, yes, maybe this thing is inside her, but it is it is waiting for something else to trigger it. And yeah. that triggering thing is the um, experiment breaking out of the glass box in New York in, um, you know, early in season three and that that thing is released and it it finds a home in Sarah Palmer. And it's only then in whatever the year is 2015 that the story is taking place. Only then that Sarah Palmer essentially becomes a possessed human being. Mm. This thing has taken root in her because there was something there waiting, essentially a dormant thing Mm. waiting for this other element to come in and enliven it. And that's how I read it. And I'm much more comfortable with that mm. reading. I, I, I think it allows us to see Sarah Palmer in Firewalk with Me and in season one as, you know, someone who is um, essentially an innocent 
who has been a victim herself mm. uh, and not an evil being who is part of some grander scheme of whatever it might yeah, be. Right. Um, I'm much more comfortable with that. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think when they were scripting those early st- you know, uh, episodes, and certainly when they were scripting Fire Walk Me, that Lynch and, or Lynch and Frost saw Sarah as that. It was only later when they were you know, making season three that they said, well, you know, she is going to perform this role in, in the show. Um, perhaps they convinced themselves, oh, she was always evil and went with that. Um, and I mean, I, obviously they're the creators and so that's what they say they say, but I honestly refute that and I will, and I don't accept that. I, yeah. I, I prefer to think that it's that night while she's watching that nature documentary, you know, documentary of the, you know, the lions killing that feral hog or whatever it is, you know, that vicious, awful, um, brutal, that, uh, scene that she's watching it it's at that moment uh that that experiment breaks free from the glass box and inhabits her and it's there that she becomes what she is in season three mm. yeah I like there yeah it's all I, take that for what it's worth I, like yeah. I mean and i think about this and i think that like for somebody who had to live with pain for 25 years of losing their child and how do they how do they manage their life and how do they, you know, how do they live? I even think, about, I always play this with Bob. Is Bob real? Is this thing that's inside of her real? Is this really a way, mm. a, sure. is this something that's really just inside of her, darkness inside of her because of all the pain that she's mm. been living Could with? Could be metaphor. Yeah, yeah, to some degree. And like, we only see right. it really snap when we have somebody, an abusive man in a bar basically, you know, mm-hmm. harassing her that, yeah, that yeah. this right. thing all of a sudden comes alive. And, right, uh, right. But yeah, you know, and and I I just wrote about this in a Blue Rose, the new issue, which actually ironically has the uh, mushroom cloud on the cover, the black yes. and white issue. I wrote an essay about uh, Judy. Um, you know, a lot of people say that um, Sarah Palmer is Judy, and I think Mark Frost would say that. He he actually, you know, says her full name is Sarah Judith Novak Palmer mm-hmm. in the book, yeah. and so he 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 gives her a middle name of Judith and. He wants us to see her as Judy. Um, of course, the question in, in season three is, who is Judy? Um, you've already met Judy. I, I wrote this thing um, about Judy in this essay about Judy, and I basically claim that Judy is not anyone. Judy is a condition. Judy mm. is, is, the, is trauma. Judy is pain. And that um, everyone experiences Judy. Um, and so, for again, for me, it's an interpretive approach to be comfortable with Twin Peaks. Um, I always say, whatever you see in Twin Peaks is real. It's true. If you interpret it a certain way, then it's absolutely correct. I can't right. come along and say, you're wrong, right. because you're not wrong. If you see it that way, it works for you that way, then it's absolutely right for you. Right. And so that's... I'm sharing some of those ideas with people mm. and saying this is how I'm interpreting it. I'm not trying to convince you or tell you you have to see it this way. I am trying to say this is how I'm comfortable with it. And, mm-hmm. and my comfort level with, with Judy is that she is not just reduced to an identity as Sarah Palmer. Um, you know, that she or it is something much bigger and can never be, can never be defeated. Uh, I think that's another point I really wanted to make is you can't defeat Judy. You can't get rid of Judy (laughs) because everyone throughout their lives is going to feel and experience trauma. They're going to pain. They're going to go undergo 
some terrible situation. And, and in those moments, that's when you're experiencing Judy. And it's, 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 you know, how do you deal with Judy when it happens to you? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe Sarah Palmer ultimately gave in and, and couldn't, you know, she'd yeah. broken down over all these years. Um, but again, I'm more comfortable with the idea of Judy being a condition that cannot just simply be defeated in your traditional narrative sense. She's a bad guy, and I'm, we beat her. It's something far more um, abstract than that. Yeah, and seasons. I mean, the return is really about pain and like people are oh, going sure. through tra- oh. traumatic experiences and awakening from those traumatic Absolutely. experiences too. Yeah. Yeah. It's about about many many things. Yeah. But trauma and uh, is and pain is one of them. I, you know, I list off a whole bunch of instances in season three where people are in trauma, but you see these characters in pain. You see it in, mm. in minor, minor characters, like the character of Chris Call, who's this, uh, you know, resident of the a fat tra- trailer park, who's giving blood yeah. in order to just m- pay his bills. And you, you, you see another character, Carl Rod, try to comfort a person who's you know, undergoing some pain. And so you have people who are willing to, to comfort. And I think a great example of that is, is Doris Truman and, and Frank Truman. And Doris Truman, you first see her, you think she's just crazy and she's just sort of this nagging wife. But she's someone who's undergone a great deal of trauma. She's lost her son and it's broken her. Mm. And you have Frank Truman staying by her side and yeah. comforting her and trying to help her. And, uh, you, you know, you've got other examples of that in season three. You know, you've got it would, uh, Ben's secretary's, you know, husband, yeah. uh, like Beverly Page, and her, he's suffering. And yep. she's trying to, you know, she's trying to endure that and, and, and live with it however she can and, and, and give to him if she can. I, I could go on. I don't mean to go on and on and on like this, but um, that's one of the fascinating things about season three. That's just one element of it. But I think that's present throughout is that you've got people in pain and how do you deal with pain? And how do you deal with someone you see in pain? Mm. You know, what do you do when you see someone who's hurting? Do you, you know, do you try to comfort them? And how much can mm. you, you know, try to alleviate their pain? Right. And, and and those are, I think, really rich moments in season three. Yeah. That I think some people maybe have overlooked in dismissing season three as this sort of, um, you know, experiment gone wrong by David Lynch. I think there's a richness to the work. And, and those aspects of it, um, I think they speak profoundly. That's one of many aspects of it that I really appreciate in it. I really take something from it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned issue 12 real quick. You know, this mm-hmm. is an amazing issue. You've got Brad Dukes who kind of talks about how his feelings about season three. You've got Dwayne Dunham interview. You've got a yeah. Ken Walsh interview. You've got your mm-hmm. take on Judy, like you mm-hmm. said. And uh, mm-hmm. my gosh, it's just a Phil amazing issue. And the thing is, it's sold out right now. And the only way you're <laughs> going to be able to get it is if you get a subscription to Blue Rose, and which is is an amazing thing. I would definitely recommend everybody pick up a subscription and, and it, it can be downloaded electronically too. Oh, that's so true. The, Kindle or right. yes, Kindle. Yeah. There you go. Yes. So you can get it. You can get it that way. Um, um, and I would say, yes, I say this is the strongest issue by far that we've done. Everyone is at the top of their game. Well, I hope I am. I, I can't say that I oh, am. You uh, always, always are. You just proved to us you are. You just yeah. laid it out for us. I comfortable with it. Yeah. But uh, certainly Courtney's interview 
with Dwayne Dunham. And that is a that is an interview to reference again mm. and again. I mean, she she really gets into some of the decision making that you know they had to make in terms mm. of editing that monster that was <laughs> eighteen hours. Yeah. And there's a great Kenneth Welsh interview. Brad Dukes is an incredible writer. There's yeah. no question about it. He's he's a fantastic writer, and he, uh, you know, writes what some people might find controversial because he didn't like season three. We've got a counter argument to that as well. It's a good issue. And I know I'm obviously, <laughs> I have a stake in, in it. Um, but I do feel very strongly uh, about this one. I think, um, you know, if you're going to buy one and you want to read a good variety of things from interviews from actors to interpretations of the work, uh, this is a great issue to get. Um, we're not far away from right. the 30th anniversary 30, of the pilot. Yeah. And so the next issue of Blue Rose, Blue Rose 13, will be all about the pilot. I will have the piece written where I'm going to look at the pilot now from the perspective of having season three. So how, yeah. do, we, how do we view it, it? And how does it inform season three? How does season three inform the pilot? It will be about you know celebrating essentially the 30th anniversary of um, Twin Peaks premiering uh you know april 8th of 1990 awesome yeah. we can't wait yeah well yeah. john thank you so much for your time i mean it's yeah. always great talking to you it's great talking about david lynch's work and uh and thank you so much for sharing with us yeah no my pleasure i i hope you guys <laughs> were okay with me babbling on and on i Never. sometimes get carried away so we could talk to you um, for, if we could we would talk to you for more hours. Yeah. yeah and where can people find you john Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Twitter's probably the best place. Um, uh, you can follow me at Thorn Whip. It's T-H-O-R-N-E-W-I-P. Um, and then, of course, uh, if you wanted to find me through BlueRoseMag.com, you could do that as well. Awesome. Thank you, John. We'll be back in a, two weeks. But while you wait for the next show, give us an email at TwinPeaksUnwrapped.gmail.com. Subscribe to us. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify, if, you, if that's your thing. And um, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And we'll see you guys in two weeks.